Well, good morning. I would ask that you would turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 this morning. Matthew chapter 19. If you're not sure where the book of Matthew is, you want to go through the Old Testament. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. And as the names get more and more difficult to pronounce, you're getting closer to the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, of course, Matthew is at the beginning, the first of the Gospels, the first book of the 27 books of the New Testament, and we find ourselves there because we have been in a series that we've entitled A Life in Focus. And we've wanted as an elder team to have this special series uh, that focuses on some important key relationships that we have as believers and to get a biblical understanding of what God has to say uh, about issues such as parenting, issues like marriage, the single life, uh, and today looking at the, the topic or the subject of divorce and remarriage. I've been blessed because I was a little concerned about how uh, how this series, series would go. It's, uh, it's a gauntlet of messages when you talk anything like parenting, marriage, singleness, and divorce and remarriage. Those are tough messages for a preacher to preach, and to put them all into one series is making me a glutton for punishment. Uh, but I've been blessed to hear how uh, how you have been blessed through this series. In fact, last week I was uh, excited to uh, get uh, many responses from individuals who uh, had never heard a message preached about singleness and the role that singles have in our church and the role they have in God's family. And uh, I had a uh, man that has a couple teenage daughters come up to me and he says, I, I knew my, my daughters were different. They were given the gift of singleness and now they know that. And one of the daughters said, oh, Dad, you know I don't have that gift. <laughs> so we created some uh, a little uh, conflict in one home. Uh, I know there were some dads of daughters who were hoping, let my daughter hear this. Let her hear it so that she will know the gift of singleness. And I was wondering how people might apply this message. And I was uh, made aware this morning that... Uh, one young lady made a decision uh, to go against the the call to be single, and that was Bridget Buens, because a young man named Eric Anderson on Friday got on one knee and proposed. Well, it's where they at. Stand on up. Come on. When we getting married? Next year. I was going to say, wow, that's quick. All right, well, praise God, and uh, uh, may uh, God bless you guys in this year to come as you prepare for that. So, well, we get into uh, the second to last part of this series where we look at this subject of divorce and remarriage. This is a difficult subject for uh, one to preach on because we live in a world uh, that finds itself plagued by the epidemic of divorce. Some here may think that this epidemic is is not involved in our church. It's not something we need to be talking about. Well, when was the last time we really heard about people getting divorced in our in our midst? But I have to tell you, I was reminded this week, uh, and I and I don't want to just give out numbers, but four distinct opportunities to counsel on the subject of divorce with our own people this week. We are not um, immune to this question of divorce. In fact, George Barna, a uh, leading thinker, especially when it comes to the intersection between faith and culture, says that believers and non-believers alike have a very similar worldview when it comes to divorce. Now that's sad, because it seems that the Bible has articulated some key aspects of understanding that we as believers should have on this subject. In fact, Barna goes on to say in a report that he did just last year, he said that our culture has made this epidemic a norm within society. He noted that Americans have grown comfortable with divorce as a natural part of life. There no longer seems, he says, to be much of a stigma attached to divorce. It now is seen as an unavoidable rite of passage within any marriage. Interviews with young adults, he goes on to say, suggest that their initial, uh, if they want their initial marriage to last, let me rephrase that, let me do that again. Interviews with young adults suggest that they want their initial marriages to last, but they are not particularly optimistic about that possibility. 
There seems to be evidence, he goes on and says, that there's evidence that young people are moving toward embracing the idea of serial marriage, in which a person will get married two, three, and even four times, seeking a different partner for the different phases of life. Now, Barna, who has written more than three dozen books on the intersection between faith and culture, also stated in regards to this that government statistics and a wealth of other research data have shown that even though we have told people the impact that a healthy marriage can have on two individuals and that marriage seems to be the most stable place to be, that cohabitation increases the likelihood of divorce and yet cohabiting is growing in popularity. He goes on to say, studies show the importance and value of preparing people for marriage seems to have fallen on deaf ears. You know, we're trying to make it happen, but it's not working because America has become an experimental, experience-driven culture. Rather than learning from objective information, he says, and teaching based on that information, people would rather uh, follow their own instincts and let the chips fall where they will. As a result of that, and with that ongoing thought that we cannot be taught biblical and godly principles towards marriage, he finishes with this statement. We can only expect that America will continue to multiply the amount of divorces within its society, and we will rank again and again and again the highest divorce rate among all developed nations in the world. What a sad commentary when it comes to our nation and marriage. Something's got to change. If the statisticians are telling us that marriage has become an epidemic, then we need, uh, as believers, to hear from God on this subject. Now, we've heard about what God has to say about marriage. We need to understand what God says about the breaking up of a marriage. Now, while it's my desire to uh, address many different ideas in this uh, message, I will tell you I can only scratch the surface, even with one of my longer messages, if you will, not to scare you, but... uh, Even with a long message, it's hard to scratch the surface. There are so many what-ifs and how about this and how about that when it comes to marriage. But I want to take the time, the limited time I have, to look to the Scriptures, to understand what God says on this subject. Not to look at what Hollywood says on a particular subject. Not to look at what the tabloid magazines say in the grocery aisle. Not to even listen to ourselves and try to understand what we think should be done when it comes to divorce and remarriage, but to look to God and His Word. Now I have to say, before I even move into our text this morning, that within our midst, I recognize that there are those who have endured a a divorce in their past. And it is my desire to clearly articulate to you and to all others what the Word of God says. Now, for some of you, this message will make you feel like a second-class citizen. For you, this message may hit you and you may feel like a failure. But remember something. Maybe this week it hits closer to home than last week. Maybe this week uh, there's more truth uh, to your own walk than three weeks ago. But as we approach the Scriptures, remember this divorced, remarried, uh, married already and ongoing in a good marriage, single, young, old, rich, poor. As we approach the Scripture of Almighty God, we all come as second-class citizens. We all come as failures. Just because you have a divorce doesn't mean God doesn't love you. He loves you just as much as He loved you if you were married. But there's a word for us this morning. So let's stand as we read Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. Let's look what Jesus has to say on this subject. It says in verse 1, When Jesus had finished saying these things, He left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Him to test Him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but they are one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, there are difficult texts that we have to deal with. And this one is difficult, not because it's hard to understand, not because the ve- there's a veil to the meaning, not because, Father, the truth isn't articulated, This is tough for all of us because we live in a culture that has made light what you say is so important. Father, we, whether married or divorced, we uh, take lightly uh, marriage. Something that you put uh, put before us in the garden in the beginning, uh, we have said is just another relationship. It's just like any other interaction uh, with another human being. But Father, you brought us together, husband and wife, that we may be partners together in life as we pursue you, as we raise children, as we uh, live life together. And Lord, we recognize because of our sin, uh, divorce is now here. Lord, help us to understand what we should in this subject. Father, let us show grace to those who have fallen uh, to this uh, terrible epidemic that we would look upon them with grace and love and mercy as we would desire in our own areas of failure to be seen. Father, let us be a light in the world of marriage. Let us live in such ways that the world sees us living differently so that in the end we may bring glory and honor to you. This is our prayer and this is our heart. So lead us now. Be our teacher, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. If we want to get a biblical understanding on the subject of divorce and remarriage, then I believe there are three things we need to do this morning. Number one, we need to recall a confrontation surrounding divorce. We need to go to the text and we need to find... um, an interaction that takes place. In fact, this is a confrontation that takes place on the subject of divorce. If you have a a Bible like I do, right above Matthew 19, the word divorce is at the heading. This is the theme for at least 11 verses in the text. And we find in the text at the beginning just some observation as we move along. Uh, Matthew is, of course, writing to the Jewish people. And he's articulating that Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews, the Savior of his people. And he articulates in this gospel, he says in verse 1, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. So we see Jesus on the move in verse 1. Next we are told that there are large crowds that are following him. Now we know this, of course, Jesus had times where he was alone, times where Jesus was with the disciples, but a lot of the time, especially during Jesus' public ministry, Jesus found himself being followed by thousands of people, and this is no different in Matthew 19. Why are they there? The verse says in verse 2 at the end, they uh, were there because he healed them. Jesus was a healer, and he was healing the multitudes of people. And they were there, but it wasn't just a group of people who were following Jesus, who wanted to hear his message, who wanted to be healed, because the text says in verse 3 that some Pharisees came to him. Now, in verse 3, we're told that it's not just all those who adore Jesus, but some Pharisees. We don't know what size group of uh, men this might have been, but we know that there is a group nonetheless. And they've come, now they haven't come to listen to preacher Jesus, they haven't come to uh, be healed by Jesus, they haven't even come to uh, worship Jesus. What does the text say that they did in verse 3? They came to do what? Help me out. Test him. They've come with an agenda. 
They've come for a reason. And I want to look at this confrontation, this testing that takes place between these Pharisees and Jesus. As we observe this confrontation, we see a couple things. First of all, we see a challenge. We see a challenge. Anytime you see the word test, you can understand, whether it's in the biblical sense or in the secular world, a test is a challenge for the person who needs to take it. For those that are just finishing up finals, you were challenged by your teachers to see if you truly listened and did the work that you were called to do. So a test is given. And the test is to challenge your intellect and your knowledge on a particular area of expertise. Jesus is being tested. Now the reason why they're testing him, challenging him, is because they want to trip him up. They want to get the crowds to stop following him. And so their test isn't per se on biblical knowledge or on speaking ability or even the uh, veracity of his uh, healing ministry. What they're testing him on are issues of uh, conflict within uh, their times. You see, they bring up the subject of divorce. What a subject to bring up to Jesus. Even back in the New Testament days, divorce was a sticky subject. It wasn't something that was just easy because divorce, of course, uh, it impacts the very nature of the family. It begins to impact the very nature of uh, the married couple. And there was no question in New Testament times that divorce was prevalent. It was going on, so there were probably many in the crowd that Jesus was speaking to who had been divorced. And so they find themselves listening. And we see uh, Jesus being challenged. It's a challenge to talk on the subject of divorce. The Pharisees knew this, and that's why they addressed it. They wanted to see if Jesus would answer correctly. Because they knew if Jesus answered correctly, it would be very hard for people to continue to follow him. When we think about that, when we talk about divorce, even before we get to what Jesus begins to articulate, when we think about divorce, we run into two challenges. And two challenges are two extremes when it comes to divorce. The first thing that we can do when the subject of divorce is brought up, whether it's by a family member, by a friend, by a coworker at work, when they say, hey, I know you go to church, I, I know that you're a religious person, what is your take on divorce, you have two choices to make. First of all, you can say more than what the Bible says. Write that down. The first thing you can do is, uh, be, when you're challenged on the subject of divorce, is to say more than what the Bible says. I don't know if you've ever been around people that do this, but I believe their heart is right. Because what they want to do is they want to protect the unity of marriage, the purity of marriage. And so what they begin to articulate are things that say more than the Bible does on the subject. They begin to point out that divorce is the unpardonable sin. That if you're divorced, then you can kiss goodbye any kind of ministry within a church. That you should just quietly sit in the church and you can receive, but because you've got that big D on your chest... There's nothing that you can do. Just pray that at the end of, of your life that God will see fit and, and there will be enough grace extended that you'll be saved. The Bible doesn't say that. They go on and they begin to articulate that there's really no area that, that divorce is allowed or permitted. That the Bible says that there's nowhere. Divorce isn't on the lips of God. And they will go to Malachi and the study that we did uh, not too long ago. And they'll say, God hates divorce. And he does. But God hates every kind of sin. And just because he calls that one out by name, he calls seven out that are detestable in his sight in the Old Testament. And so people begin to say, but this one is a little bigger. This one is uh, a little more offensive to God. Their hearts may be right, but their theology, their practice is wrong. The second thing that you can do is you can say less than what the Bible says. This group, when they're challenged, and churches do, churches do this as a corporate group, they say more, and sometimes they say less. They look at our culture and they have compassion on the culture. And they say, man, there's a lot of divorced people out there. 
And if we preach on this subject and, and really say what the Bible says and, and maybe call people out for, for the sin of divorce, then, then we, might, we might hurt some feelings. We might get people mad at us. And so they say in a culture that's inundated by this, let's just let people make their own decisions. Who are we to get involved in the uh, uh, dissolving of a marriage? Let people, they've got their own understanding of, of why they're getting a divorce. Let's just leave it to them. Well, the reason why they do this is because they want to pursue love and grace. Right heart. But we've got to balance it. I love that about Jesus. In the book of John, Jesus was told to be full of grace and truth. That should be our desire here at Village Bible Church. That should be the desire of every Christian here, to be like Jesus, to be full of grace, to love people as they are, to dine with tax collectors and pagans as Jesus did, but to speak the truth and to speak it in love. Now, why would this have created such a challenge? We have to look at the culture of the times next. Verse 3, Jesus is asked the question, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Where did that question come from? Where did they come up with that? If you understand uh, first century Jewish um, uh, politics when it comes to religious living, you would understand that during this time there was a debate going on. Now the debate that was going on was a huge debate. They wanted to know one of the hotly contested topics of their day, what would Jesus say? Now, if you will, let's, let's pretend that we are in that group of people, that great multitude. And these men come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we have a question for you. Can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? And you say, well, that's an important question. But in the day, that was incredibly important. There was a lot of debate going on. And to hear Jesus' answer would be huge. I wonder if at that point, the crowd got quiet and they looked to Jesus and said, how will he answer? It would be kind of like saying that Jesus is here today and someone calls out to Jesus and said, Jesus, Democrat or Republican? Jesus, gun control or pro-gun Jesus what about pro-life or pro-choice Jesus pro-death penalty or death penalty Jesus should we go to war or Jesus shouldn't we Jesus gay marriage or Jesus no gay marriage I'm telling you it was an important thing it'd be like Jesus being here and the people yelling out Jesus north side or south side oh that answer's already been done It's an important question. What would Jesus say? I wonder if their ears were perked up and they said, Listen, our teacher, this rabbi, what is he going to do? And there's a reason for it. Because the Jewish rabbis were divided on this subject of divorce. There were two main uh, Jewish rabbis who had split the Jewish people into interpreting Deuteronomy 24.1. Turn there for a moment. If you're in Matthew 19, go back to the beginning, to the fifth book of the Bible, to Deuteronomy. We were there in the first part of our series and we talked on the subject of parenting. So you'll see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24. This is where the debate finds its beginning. This is why people are wanting to know what Jesus has to say. And this is why the Pharisees came to test him. And it all has to do with one verse. Moses, of course, is writing this. And he tells the children of Israel, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him. That's an important word, that word displeasing. Because he finds something indecent about her. He writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. Let's stop there for a moment. Now go back to Matthew 19. That's the debate. What did Moses mean? 
Did he, what did he mean by the word displeasing? What did he mean by the word indecent? What are those things? What are the grounds for divorce? Can a man divorce a woman for any reason? There were two positions. First of all, there was a position by a great rabbi who was known as Hillel. And Hillel was a very well-known rabbi. And he was a trusted rabbi in Jewish times. And he was a liberal when it came to this subject. He said the following, and this is written in uh, Josephus' Antiquities, uh, a secular writing of history of the first century. And what Josephus says is that Hillel's position was that a man could divorce a woman for any reason. If he began to think that, um, if a man began to think that his wife wasn't looking as fine as she did a couple years ago, he could get a divorce. If a man thought his wife talked too much, he could give her a divorce. If a man had a meal prepared for him and he ate it and he did not like it, Halal said, divorce her, get rid of that broad. But then there was another position. And the other position was a man, a, a rabbi named Shammai. And Shammai was, a, was a, a, not a liberal, but a conservative. And he said, no, that's not what Moses means. It's not, that's not the displeasing. That's not the indecent thing. What it is, is sexual immorality. That's it. There's nothing more there. And so what was happening in that time, the Pharisees bring this question to Jesus and the people are wondering, how will Jesus answer it? Will he answer with the great Hillel who is liberal on the subject? Or will he be a conservative? It's no different than today, is it? And so what does Jesus do? Notice he doesn't answer the wrong question. He gives the right answer. A little different. Look at verses 4 through 6. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and, and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one. And therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. Let man not separate. I always say it the other way during my marriage ceremonies. Let man not separate. What do we see here? We see a celebration of marriage. How does Jesus respond? He responds by celebrating marriage. Write that in your outlines. Instead of answering the question that they have, he turns it on him and he says, you're asking the wrong question. When is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? Let me tell you what the right answer and the right question is. How do you maintain marriage? How do you understand the role that marriage has when it comes to God? And he says, in the beginning... God created it. What that tells us is that even Jesus saw marriage as something that God designed. And he goes on, and this is important in our culture. People say, well, Jesus doesn't talk about uh, gay marriage or not and the veracity of that. And look at what it says. He gives us the design. He says, a, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Man, woman. There's a design to marriage, and God celebrates that, and Jesus Christ announces that to the people, and he articulates, hey, haven't you read? You're so worried about the law, and how, what you can get away with the law, that you have forgotten the gift that God gave you. And he says, amidst all that, because God gave this to you, because God designed it, and God has defined it, you can't destroy it. You shouldn't destroy it. And then he goes on and he says, they, they say, all right, well, we didn't get Jesus there, so they got to keep working on this. So the next question comes up, verse 7. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So they're saying, all right, we didn't get Jesus to answer the Hillel Shammai question, liberal conservative question, so we'll go to the heart of the matter. And what do they do? They go right to Jesus and they say, Jesus... Why do you disagree with Moses? Moses, the great lawgiver. Because you're saying, hey, uh, you're talking marriage. He was talking divorce. Why are you not, not talking about what Moses is talking about? And they said, Moses commanded uh, us to do this. And Jesus responds. And notice what he says. He says, Moses permitted 
There's a big difference between permit and command. I command a lot of things of my children. Don't do this, do that. Don't go there, but go here. But there is within those commands a permission to do things. My sons can go out into the backyard and if they want to jump on the trampoline, they're permitted to do so. If they want to go on the playground, they're permitted to do so. And so there's never a command by Moses given. This is a deliberate distortion of Scripture trying to trip up Jesus into making a decision. And what he says is, is it's not commanded. Understand this, write this somewhere in your outline. Divorce is never commanded, nor is it um, encouraged to be done. Nowhere in Scripture will you ever see, thus saith the Lord, think about marriage, it's got some good ideas connected to it. It never says that. It never says, uh, if your husband's a deadbeat, you are commanded to get rid of him. Move on. But why is it permitted? Because man's heart is hard. Moses permitted this in verse 8, he says, to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. We need to understand something. That the core of every divorce, please hear me, at the core of every divorce is the issue of sin. Because what it is, is it's the tearing apart of a God-ordained plan. If God's will is for husband and wife to live together for a lifetime, and you pursue, whether passively or actively, that breaking of that, then you're going against the design and plan of God when it comes to marriage. Now understand this, every issue that we have as, um, as people in marriages that create opportunities for us to become angry with one another and sin against one another is because we come into a marriage as two sinners. That's one of the dilemmas of marriage. Singleness, you don't have to worry about another sinner. We talked about that last week. But marriage, we connect two sinners together and two sinners don't make a right. You understand that, right? It's one of those things. Two negatives don't equal a positive. And yet, Moses understood and God allowed because of this issue, because we are sinners, he said, all right, you're sinners, you can't figure it out, you're, not, you're unwilling to do what I've called you to, then I will permit a divorce. But it's not just what any kind of divorce. But even before we get there, we need to understand, look at what the text says. He says, but this was, but it was not this way from the beginning. That should resonate in our hearts. God says, okay, you've been permitted, you've been allowed to divorce under certain circumstances. But understand this, it was not intended in the beginning to be that way. What I see in that text, I may be wrong, but what I see in that text is an understanding that no matter what biblical things, and we'll get to that in a couple moments here, whatever biblical reasons there are for permission to get divorced, it was never God's intention. And so if you find yourself in a difficult marriage, you find yourself at a troublesome spot, understand this, that God wants you to stay married. That was his intention when he designed it. And yes, he's given a permission, a variance, if you will, under certain circumstances to get a divorce. But that was not, it's not his desire or his intention or will for your life. Because it wasn't that way in the beginning. And yet we find ourselves listening to culture and not Christ. Because we want to blame our spouses. We know that our spouse has sinned against us and done terrible things to us and I never want to under uh, or diminish that in any way. But we have a choice that needs to be made. Do we pursue restoration and live for Christ or do we pursue bitterness? Divorce in the end is a couple that is unable to deal with their anger and their issues and become so bitter that it's impossible for them to live together. Again, notice, Jesus didn't say this wasn't what it was designed for. And so what we have done is we've taken the gift of marriage and we've destroyed it. The second thing I want to look to is go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. We've looked at what Jesus has to say on the subject. Paul's going to give us some clarifying words that we need to look at as well. 
We were in 1 Corinthians, which is just, you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of uh, Acts, the book of Romans, and then the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Of course, we know that Paul is addressing the church at Corinth on the subject of marriage, on the subject of singleness, on the subject of sex, all these different things he's talking about. And we need to understand, okay, Jesus says, hey, um, no divorce. But let's see what Paul has to say. Look at verses 10 through 16. He says this, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, Paul addresses the church at Corinth, and he says on the subject of marriage and the issue of singleness, he now comes to, okay, let's talk about the dynamics of divorce. And what are his words? He shares. He says, I want to cite two areas of concern I have. Number one, I want to talk about the messed up marriages. So we see him recognizing, we see Paul, first of all, I'm a little ahead of my outline here to help Dave. We need to recognize the Bible's teaching about divorce and remarriage in certain specific contexts. That's what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We know what Jesus has shared, and Paul even alludes to that passage in Matthew 19. And he says, hey, Jesus has spoken on some things, but I want to even add to that understanding about some specific areas of context that we need to know about when it comes to divorce. It involves, first of all, the messed up marriage. It involves a messed up marriage. It's one of the first situations he deals with. And Paul says in uh, verse 10 and 11, he gives a blanket prohibition and he says, a wife should not separate from her husband. And at the end of verse 11, and a husband must not divorce his wife. It's as clear as black and white. What is God's will on the subject of marriage and divorce? You stay married, you don't get a divorce. It's a blanket statement. Now you will say, but Tim, you you don't understand how bad my marriage is. You don't understand how messed up it is. There's a lot of dysfunction. I thought I was marrying Prince Charming, and boy, was I wrong. He used to help around the house. He used to say he wanted kids. He used to say that pursuing a job wasn't uh, all that important, but that he wanted to pursue his love of me, and boy, did I get that wrong. Tim, you don't understand. He says abusive things to me. Tim, you don't understand. Uh, She shops all the time and takes all our money. Tim, you don't understand. She's a nag. Tim, you don't understand. He flirts with other girls. Tim, you don't understand. I don't understand. I can only understand what I've endured. But I know Jesus does. And I know God does. And while all those things may be true in marriages that are represented here today, none of them give the right to get a divorce. None of them. Paul says, no, none of those work, even if your marriage is messed up. But notice what he says. Okay, he goes along the lines of Jesus. That's a good person. That's a, it's a right view that a Christian should have. Paul is addressing the question, what about divorce? And he says, hey, it shouldn't happen. That's what Jesus was saying at that time. But notice what he says in verse uh, 10. But if she does, that's a big word there, it's a but. But if she does, meaning I understand that there are circumstances because of the hardness of our hearts that we are going to drive one another crazy in marriage and because of that sin, we're going to try to pursue ending that marriage in divorce. So here's my word for you. There are two words if you want to have a biblical understanding of divorce. You can get divorced. It's permitted. It's allowed. But there's a but. And here's the but. Verse 10. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. you got two options. You put the divorce papers on the table and you say, I'm out of here, spouse. You've got two options. Option number one, you remain single for the rest of your life. Option number two, in that messed up marriage, what you do is you seek reconciliation. 
Those are the two things you can do. Remain single or seek reconciliation. Tim, where do you get that? But if she does, she must remain unmarried. That's singleness. Or else be reconciled to her husband. That's what Paul says. It's permitted. But there's grounds by which that permission then takes place. So we see a messed up marriage. But Paul goes on in verses 12 through 14 and we see a spiritually mixed marriage. There's another question, Paul. What about us who don't see eye to eye spiritually? Let's look at what he says. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not, must not divorce him. Now let's stop there. 12 and 13 give us another scenario. Scenario can be seen in two specific ways. Number one, a husband and a wife, or a, a man and a woman think about getting married. There's one problem. The man's a believer and the woman's not, or vice versa. The Christian in the relationship says, you know what? I found love, and Jesus is important to me, but he's not that important. It's more important for me to follow the woman or the man in my life and be unequally yoked than it is to follow Jesus. And so they enter into a marriage, and, and they're in the church at Corinth, and Paul is asked the question, they say, what about me? I made a mistake, I, I got unequally yoked, but i got to tell you something, I never thought it would be this bad. Every time I go to church, he's yelling and screaming at me, he talks bad about Jesus, he says all these terrible things about my faith, he makes my life very difficult because of our faith. Paul says, hey, no, no on the divorce. There's another aspect of that before we get too far. And that is that it's not an unequally yoked uh, because of choice, but based on circumstance. Unbelieving wife, unbelieving husband enter into the bonds of marriage. And sometime down the road, uh, the wife starts attending the first church at Corinth. And she finds Jesus. And now she's unequally yoked. She hasn't broken a command. She's just found Jesus. And now, that's, now there's a question, what do they do? It's the same circumstances. You find because of one circumstance or another an unequally yoking taking place. What are you to do? Paul says, all right, here's the question. Divorce isn't an option for you. It's an option for the unbeliever. Look at what he says. If they're willing, I'm just going to put it into the plural there. If they're willing to live with you, you must not divorce them. The idea here is if they're not making a marital issue about your faith and about the issue of being unequally yoked, then divorce, divorce is never an option for you, but it's an option for them. It's okay for the unbeliever to say, I want out. We'll get to that in a moment when we address it in the next point. But there's no credence given to the aspect of divorce in that circumstance. He says, you stay with them. But why? Why would you stay with them? Look at what he says in verse uh, 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Okay, let's stop there for a second. What he's saying is, is the reason why I don't want you to get a divorce, the reason why a believer should never divorce an unbeliever is because you have a wonderful opportunity to be involved in your relationship with God. And as you're honoring God, as you're worshiping God, there's something special that is going on. And he says it is an idea of setting apart, sanctifying. Not in the terminology as we would be, that sanctification is the process where we become more like Christ. But what it is, is as, as I am involved in my relationship with God, and as God blesses me because I'm so close to my spouse, even though they are an unbeliever, they're getting some of those leftovers that God brings to me. They're being blessed. As I am a husband, a believing husband to an unbelieving wife, if I love my wife as Christ loved the church, my wife is blessed. If a, if a believing wife, this is hard to put in your mind here, if a believing wife is uh, submitting to her husband as God has called her to submit, then the unbelieving husband is blessed. 
And he says, so what you do is you don't break off the marriage. You use the marriage as the tool for the greatest opportunities of evangelism that you've ever had. And he says, pursue that. You want to pursue something? You be like Christ to your unbelieving spouse. Because what it will do is it will allow an opportunity for that person to see Jesus. So he says, don't divorce. Get disciplined and start devoting yourself to the outreach of your spouse. So he says, no divorce. So the question is, where can we divorce? Let's look at point three. Excuse me, point three. And that is we must review the circumstances that allow for remarriage. You say, Tim, I'm not sure there is any. You keep saying that he doesn't say anything uh, good about divorce. In fact, it's just so important for us to recognize when remarriage can take place. Why is it so important? Go back to Matthew 19 for a moment. I didn't finish that part of the text because I held it back for this. Listen to what Jesus' words are if you're not there in Matthew 19.9. Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman, what does he do? Commits adultery. Folks, we got to get this thing locked in because if we make light of this issue of divorce and remarriage, the Bible says that we enter into our second marriage in the sin of adultery. We don't want that. That's not God's will for us. So we need to understand what the Bible articulates, what the Bible says. I believe through a careful study of Scripture, there are three reasons why, or three uh, certain circumstances that God would allow permit a divorce. But before I get there, let me articulate something. Just because God says here are three circumstances in my word that I give an allowance for divorce me, I'm not going to hold this against you you're going to notice in each one that he never encourages it. In fact, he encourages the opposite. So even if you say, hey, Tim, this is what happened to me. I fall into one of the three categories. Paul's word is, and then go just find a divorce. If you got it, hey, ding, 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 head to divorce court, make it happen, and go get remarried to somebody else because, oh, you got lucky. Of all the different laws on divorce and remarriage, you got one of the three. Go get remarried. That's not what he says. So let's look at them. There are three uh, opportunities or variances, a better term, uh, for the opportunity of a remarriage. The first one is the death of your spouse. Now, this cannot happen by your hands. Just want to make sure that's, that's said there. Okay? The death of your spouse. Turn to Romans for a moment. Romans chapter uh, 7 with me. First Corinthians, go back through the book of Acts. I'm sorry, go back to, go back just one book to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7. Paul is talking to the church in Rome. He's articulating some things. He's talking about the life in Christ, the struggle with sin. And in the middle of, of that thought, he comes up and he has this illustration about marriage. And he shares some words in verses 2 and 3. He says, For example, by law a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies... She is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. This is a word for widows or widowers. What Paul is saying is saying, okay, the law says you um, are bound to your husband as long as you live. That's what your vows are, for better or for worse, sickness, health, um, rich or poor. You're there together forever till what? Death do us part. Paul says, all right, if one of you dies, then you have the uh, opportunity or the privilege um, to not be called an adulterer if you um, get into another marriage, but you're free to remarry. But again, let's look at what Paul says in verse, uh, let's see here, verse 8 of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. This is what I mean that it's never encouraged or talked about in, in 
you know, just go and make it happen. Verse 80 says, and now to the unmarried and the, what does it say there? Help me out. The widows. Remember Paul wrote Romans. Now he's writing in 1 Corinthians. He said, it is good for them to stay unmarried. He says, you know what? You want the better thing? Widows, I know you miss your spouse and I know there's an area of struggle in your life. You know, that your, your area of, of missing, uh, the sense of missing that person that was your one flesh. He says, good for you to stay unmarried. But notice again the words that we looked at when it came to singleness. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That word is to widows as much as it is to the young single. Those two groups never thought that they would ever be lumped into the same demographic. Never did they think that the subject of sex would come into that and it would apply to both of them. And yet it does. He says, hey, if, you're, if your spouse is dead and you have a fire within you, a fire to pursue marital joys and all that's involved in it, then get remarried. But it's better to stay single. That's the first one. Second one. Not the, there's the death of the spouse and then there's the desertion of an unbelieving spouse. The second permission that is given is that an unbelieving spouse can leave. Listen to what verse 15 says in our text. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in some, su- such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So we go back to that scenario where there's an unequally yokedness taking place. And we see that Paul addresses it and he says, All right, believer, you're never allowed to leave that. Because why? Look at what he says in verse 16. How do you know, wife, that you will save, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So he says, you can't leave, Christian. But the unbeliever can. How does that look? What happens is, very quickly, an unbeliever is living his life and he's married to another unbeliever. And they're just enjoying life together in the area of Corinth. They're doing their jobs. They have their kids and all that. And everything's going well. And remember that wife that goes to the first church of Corinth? She shows up, goes to a Beth Moore women's Bible study and uh, gets saved. And she comes home and she says, I found Jesus! I love Jesus. Jesus is great. Jesus is awesome. You should fall in love with Jesus too, husband. And he says, you shouldn't be in love with any other man, whether his name is Jesus or anything else. This is crazy. Woman, I married you and we were together on these things. Now you've fallen off the deep end, gone to that crazy church, and you've come back with crazy things in mind that are going to affect the way we raise our children, the way we're going to live life together, the way we spend our money, the way we talk to one another. You change the rules. And so you know what I'm doing? I'm getting out of here. And what does the Bible say? Live at peace and let them go. Doesn't mean you don't fight for him. Just say, oh, I was waiting for that. Thank you. That's why I went to that church, trying to get rid of you. That's not the response they're looking for. The response there is that you're living at peace. You're loving Jesus and you're loving your spouse. But this issue of Jesus cannot be avoided in the unbeliever's mind. And he says, or she says, I'm gone. What does Paul say? Look at the text again, verse 15. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. They're free to remarry is what that means. The final thing that uh, there's an allowance for divorce is the destruction of the marriage bond through adultery. Matthew chapter 9, 19, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. This is what the text says. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, here's the exception clause, except for marital unfaithfulness. It's the word porneia where we get the, the English word pornography. It's a, it's a general term of sexual immorality. And what he's saying is, is, and I like how the NIV translators translate it here, unless for marital unfaithfulness. The idea here is adultery. Any kind of, di, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I don't, let me just scratch that. I don't know where I'm going with that. What it means is is that any kind of form of sex that happens outside the realm of marriage between a man and a woman that breaks the marriage bond. Sex is the seal 
that seals the covenant of marriage. Remember back in uh, first century times, even in Old Testament times, a king would, would uh, articulate a law, a covenant, and he says, we're going to do this or that, and he would take his ring and he would put it into wax and he would seal it. They called it the signet ring. And the, ring, the thing that symbolizes our covenant together is the two becoming one flesh. The place that that happens is in the marriage bed. That's why the book of Hebrews says the marriage bed cannot be defiled. The idea here is that's the, co- the sign of the covenant. And so what Jesus is articulating is when you break that covenant and fall to adultery, there is an opportunity for the offended party to walk away. To say, you know what, you broke the deal. You broke the seal the covenant of marriage. And because of that, you've broken our bond. And I'm allowed now, because I'm the innocent party, to walk away from this thing. Now remember, Jesus never says, if your husband or your wife commits adultery, run to the divorce court and divorce that bad person. He doesn't say that. It's permitted. What would Jesus rather us do? Forgive to recognize that we have sinned against God and God has forgiven us, to recognize that we all struggle with the issue of adultery. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5.23? I, I think it's 5.23. Don't quote me on the verse. I think it's Matthew 5.23. If a man looks on a woman lustfully in his heart, it says that he hasn't committed adultery with her in the flesh, but there's no difference between the flesh and the heart. What we think and what we do may have two very distinct consequences, but in God's eyes, they're sin, and He calls it out. So maybe you find yourself that you've heard your spouse has been messing around and been now caught in the sin of adultery. Yes, you're permitted to get remarried. You're committed to get a divorce and be remarried. But God says, pursue forgiveness. Give your partner, give your, uh, your husband or wife the opportunity to seek restoration. Don't just be flippant and say, you know what, I knew this was going to happen. I knew you were a dog and you were going to do this. Get lost. Jesus says, pursue forgiveness first. But if it doesn't work, and after a long season, I tell anybody, whoever wants to talk to me, I had this subject come up this week. A, a woman asked me, um, and she finds herself, this particular woman finds herself as a saved individual, recently saved, um, married to an unbeliever, struggling in her marriage. And I gave her this word. If you want to hear me even talk on the subject of divorce, I want to watch you for six months do all that you can to seek reconciliation. You give me six months and then we'll talk about what you can and can't do when it comes to divorce. Divorce is not an easy solution. Even when the Bible says it's okay, We have to be careful with this thing. This is the destruction of God's plan. And we don't want to do that. Now you would say, Tim, what about those who have physical and verbal, or involved in physical and verbal abuse? Shouldn't I get a divorce? My husband hits me. My husband strikes the children. Uh, you, You didn't talk about that. That should be a permission to get a divorce. Let me tell you something. I don't want to fall into one of the extremes to say more than what God's word says or less. And what I understand is God's word does not address that. And so here is my word for you. Get out of the house. Separate. Get help. Your husband raises a fist at you. You raise the phone at him. Defend yourself and call 911. And if they don't answer, use the phone and hit your husband. I'm going to get in trouble for that. I'm sorry. Okay? Use wisdom. Your kids are in trouble, in danger. Get the kids out of the home. If there's verbal abuse taking place, don't take it. Leave the house. Separate yourself. Say, I don't have to live in a house where I'm being abused in that way. And then get under the care of some godly individuals who can nuance, listen to me, nuance your particular situation. And then they can help you work through whether or not divorce is an option because of what you're saying. Do you understand? But remember, if you have an abusive husband or abusive wife, Yeah, get a divorce. It's a messed up marriage. But what that means is God says, don't get remarried. We need to remember that. So let me break this down very quickly. Three things. I want to talk to each of us for a moment. Tough subject. I've probably offended some. 
But I pray that my words are God's word. So here are my words from God's word to those who are divorced. You find yourself in our midst. You're a part of our family. We love you. We're so thankful you're here. We recognize, as you should recognize, that we are all sinners before a holy God. And today is your week where you feel a little bit hot under the collar. I feel that way every Sunday, by the way. And yet, God loves you, and we do too. So here are some words for you. Number one, seek forgiveness for the sin of divorce. Whatever caused it, whatever allowed you to make that decision, you go before God and you ask forgiveness. If we confess our sins, even of divorce, God is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God can heal and God forgives. The second thing that you need to understand and know, as far as it depends on you, seek peace with your former spouse. That might be tough. God says, for as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. But Paul, you don't mean, yeah, he means that person too. Seek peace. Live at peace with them. If you've remarried, and you say, now Tim, yeah, I, I remarried, and, and my marriage was messed up in the first place, and now you're calling me an adulterer, you're an adulterer for as long as you have that sin unconfessed. Jesus says, confess it. Just as I, if I think uh, lustfully on a woman, I'm an adulterer until I confess and I'm restored back to place. But you say, Tim, now I'm remarried. What do I do? Look at what Paul says. In verse, Paul answers this. In verse uh, 17 of, of uh, 1 Corinthians 7, Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to them, to which God has called them. What are you to do if you're remarried? Two divorces don't make a right. Stay married to the spouse that you have now. Live at peace with your spouse before the spouse before you, the, the first spouse. Seek reconciliation from God. And in your second marriage, live for the glory of God. One final thing for you who are divorced. Don't live in light of the past. Live in light of what Christ's future is for you. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It's not even close. The blood of the cross that we sang about and that we remember today cleansed you from that. Be cleansed and be guilt-free from that sin. For those who are married, beware of the pitfalls in marriage. They're there. Make sure that you're committed in your relationship, your spouse, that that commitment involves Jesus Christ. You want to divorce-proof your marriage? Get close to Jesus. Get there. And one final thing, get the word divorce out of your vocabulary. Get it out. I have heard people even in our own midst that have said, if this happens, I'm gone. And you may even be right. If my husband cheats on me, I'm gone. Yeah, you can. But is that what God wants you to do? Is that what God has called you to do? He's permitted it. But what brings Him more glory and honor? It's when we forgive one another and live at peace with one another. Get it out of your vocabulary. Don't let it come up in fights. Don't let it come up in your disputes. Leave it and say whatever happens in the good and bad, in the adultery, in the non-adultery, in the um, decisions that disagree, we are going to live at peace. My first week of marital, premarital counseling with Amanda uh, and a new, in a new family, we, we do our premarital counseling together. The first week is all about divorce. I just figure, you know what? Half of the people I'm going to marry are going to end up in divorce. I better get them ready to understand what God's Word says about it. And so the first week is all about how do you know that you're not going to fall to that? Beware of those things. And to all, no matter where you find yourself, married, single, divorced, old, young, Paul gives a word of exhortation to us. Live for Christ. Live for for Christ. Notice what he says in our text as I close this out. What I mean, brothers, in verse 29 is that time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as they had none. 
doesn't mean you don't, you're not married anymore. It's the thinking. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. Why, Paul? For this world in its present form is passing away. Marriage will pass away. Divorce will pass away. Even earthly relationships will pass away. But what are we called to? Because time is short, whether married, unmarried, single, divorced, wherever you find yourself, to live for Christ. That's where you should be at. Yes, it's important to live as you're married. It's important for you to do that. It's important for you to uh, hold up your spouse and love them and care for them. But it's all the more important that we as believers not just become so engrossed with the things of this world, but to live for Christ. Do that and we will bring glory to God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we thank you for this word on divorce and remarriage. Father, I pray for anyone who is out there this morning who is saying, maybe it's time. Lord, I pray that you would intervene, that you would move in the hearts of that person and change them. Lord, have them recognize that you have forgiven us, that you love us, even when we're we're unlovable. When we've sinned against you, you come and you extend grace and mercy and meet us in our sin, not in our holiness. Lord, this is what it means when you say that we are to love one another with the love that you showed. We're to forgive one another as the forgiveness that you have shown. So Lord, allow it to take place for those that are finding themselves on the edge. Lord, for those who in their past have struggled with this, Lord, I pray that they would hold their heads up high and they would announce not the sins of their past, but the Savior who came and bought them with His blood. Lord, let us announce that. That we would not find ourselves wallowing in our sins of our past. Lord, you know how many I have and how ashamed I am of them. And yet, Lord, you have pulled me out of the miry clay and you have made me your son, an heir with Christ. And for that, we're thankful. Lord, give us a biblical view of this subject. Let us be a light in a world of darkness when it comes to this, that we will not judge uh, in an unbiblical way, that we will not call out commands that don't come from you, but that we will live in accordance with your word so that the world may know that we are your people that we want to live like you. Lord, let us leave this place changed because we've encountered your word and we've encountered your spirit this morning. As we go from this place, whether to ABFs or activities of the day, Father, let our minds be tuned into you, not engrossed in the things of this world, that we may live differently because we love you, because you first loved us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.